You know, a new morph doesn't come along very often at all. This is a one in a million. Like, this doesn't happen at all. Especially something like this where it's an hygiene, complete pattern changer, a complete color enhancer. Everything about it is cool. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. Before we get started, portcitypythons.com, we have some animals available. We have our honey project is coming out already and the ghosts and everything like that. Everyone's getting up on the website slowly but surely as they get eating. Other than that, we also have some eastern black king snakes that just hatched out. So if you guys are interested in those, hit me up. We already have a little bit of a waiting list for them. Other than that, we do have, of course, as always, things like springtails and shirts available on the website. So... Today's show, got that over out of the way real quick. Today, we have John Scarborough of Gecko Boa. So John breeds multiple, keeps and breeds multiple animals in the Ubiflaris genus. And he can correct me if I totally mess that up. So John, thank you so much for being here. Uh, how you doing? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. So let's get into a little bit of how you got interested in reptiles. Uh, I, I think it's more along the lines of DNA when it comes to interest in reptiles. <laughs> so yeah, I was, uh, I think I got the gene for the rock flipper and the, the guy with the flashlight at night, you know, I'm not scared of the dark. I want to go out there and look for reptiles. So been like that since I was a kid and just loved it, man. Um, so I was in all all animals in general um, from a young age, and um, I think I think at uh, a certain point I kind of realized that my reptile interest and my animal interest wasn't probably going to pay the bills, and so I got into the corporate world and I did that for a while, and then uh, a friend of mine gave me a boa constrictor um, about I think it was about two thousand five or so. And when I got that boa constrictor, I started looking back on the internet and the whole world kind of opened up to me. And I realized there was lots of different morphs and lots of different ways to go with this. And I just got really excited about it again and um, just went after it. So I kind of that time I was still doing my professional career, um, still the corporate world, but um, I started buying constrictors with every last dollar that I have at that at that point so I one boa turned into you know five really quickly like most of us <laughs> is the situation so um I think around 2009 ish um my wife at the time girlfriend uh went to a reptile show with me and she bought a pair of leopard geckos and uh, we, I was taking care of the boa constrictors and they were all in the same room. So the leopard geckos were in the same room as the boa constrictors. And so 
I uh, I just kind of realized how easy they were, and she started getting eggs right away and producing uh, new new geckos right away. And I was like, man, what am I doing with these boas? They're just taking so long. And um, 2010, I think 2009 or somewhere around there, I just went from corporate world and I just said, screw it, I'm done. Um, I'm cutting all my credit cards and I'm just going hardcore reptiles. And I went after the, the leopard geckos full steam and um, never looked back since. So that's general story of it. So, <laughs> Did, Were you actually breeding and selling previous to quitting your job or was this kind of a thing very where you built little, up a cat? Very little. Well, the constrictors were tough and um, I had some really cool ones and I look back at it now and I still like reminisce on the times I had some of those really awesome Pucalpa Peruvian boas from Rio Bravo and some of those, you know, I, I really liked those locality boas back then and you know, it's one of those things where, yeah, they're they're awesome, and I wish I had them still. But you know, it's just part of the learning curve, you know. And um, I'm happy where I'm at. I've I've gone through a lot of struggles with reptiles, and a lot of ups, a lot of downs. And I think, uh, you know, I've I've worked with a lot of species of geckos, a lot of different species of monitors, and um, I. I I think I'm happy where I'm at now. I, I enjoy where I'm at. So. I think, I don't think a lot of people realize that typically keepers go through like a few different phases before you find exactly what sticks. So like, it seems like you were messing with some boas and it seems like now, I mean, how many boas do you have in your collection? Zero. I, I, uh, I cut out most of them in probably 2012 because i moved from california to colorado and boas were just very difficult to move so um i cut out a lot of them at that point and i wasn't it was one of those things where i was really it was really hard for me to let go of but over time i just my interest was just drawn more to leopard geckos and um if anybody if anything that people get out of the show is just you know, leopard geckos are not just that new person species or new newbie species or whatever you want to say. They're really kind of a fun species to work with. And it's the reason why they're so popular, you know. It's kind of like ball pythons in a lot of ways, you know. A lot of different morphs. But there is a lot of excitement with how the different uh, species within the genus um, are, you know, they're very, very different. There's a lot of different uh diversity within that genus so um lots of work with there and a lot of fun because they're egg to egg within you know 10 months yeah that's what's so crazy is that when most people are even just getting into it you're still only a few months away from breeding and then often a lot of times the animals look like they could be you know around breeding size when they're by the time they're ready to sell often you know at shows that i go to Oh, yeah. Uh, female ovulates typically around eight to 10 months, but could be earlier, could be later. Average is always one year. So that's the thing you got to think about. So they're not always going to be 10 months. They're going to be a little bit more, a little bit less. They still follow a season. Um, so they're going to, you know, start 
uh, ovulating around, you know, spring. Some people are a lot earlier. I'm very late. So most of my stuff doesn't start ovulating until like June, July. Um, this year, extremely late. So, um, yeah, it's still average around one year, but one year egg to egg, and you can see your progress on your your animals. It's very nice, you know, like with boas, for instance, it was four, three, four years for females, a little bit less for males. It's tough when it's like that, you know? <laughs> so what is the, because obviously there's a lot of plus sides to the animals, both being, you know, growing up to maturity quick and also being, you know, somewhat simple to breed. So what are some of the downsides of that? I mean, it seems like the market would move like very quick in comparison to others. Yeah, I think you see a lot of things like some advantages too, because you don't see quite the difficulties in like other reptiles where, for instance, with leopard geckos, it's extremely important not to cross albinos, not to cross genetic strains that are confused. So if you cross two snows, for instance, and you can't tell which snow you got, that's a problem. Or albinos, for instance, albinos are incompatible. So there's three albino strains. Uh, there's Tremper, Bell, and Rainwater, or Las Vegas albino. And they're all incompatible. So if you cross those strains, you'll get normals basically out of the geckos or just wild types. Um, so if, if you're breeding all these geckos together and you have no idea what you're getting, like it just ends up being, it just ends up being a, a big problem with that in general. So. I mean, is this kind of though, if you're someone who is interested in keeping things pure and doing the proper record keeping and making sure all your, you know, eyes are dotted and T's are crossed. I mean, doesn't that give you such an advantage since so many people are reckless with it? Or yeah, it's, you also it's, fear it's about honestly crazy to me how many people are just, you know, whatever about it and don't care. And it's not that hard to me. Like, it, I mean, be honest about everything and, you know, do your best to like, like I'm a, with leopard geckos, a lot of people think either, I think breeders go either mill style where they're producing hundreds of thousands of leopard geckos for like the pet trade because they're a very good starter reptile for people like PetSmart or whatever um or they they go you know like they're just doing it on the side and they're not really caring about it at all so i'm kind of in between that and i just do really high-end stuff and it's actually, it's, it's worked out pretty well for me. And I think that's the way to go with it. Reptile or leopard geckos in general are just a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, you get a lot of, a lot of variation when you're hatching out stuff. Um, it's kind of like ball pythons in that sense, but there's a lot more line bread aspect to it, which is fun. So like the line bread, like if you breed two tangerines to two, like another tangerine, and you get something that's kind of weird looking and you can expand on that that's fun you know and every year you're hatching them out it's quick too it's not four years till you see what the next result is you're looking at a year to to see what what happens with that so it's a lot of fun with that but so also i think we're seeing a bigger problem is i don't know with other other uh 
different species, but some of the other species that have morphs that are like kind of close together, that kind of look like each other, they might, they might be things that you can't tell the difference between each other. So when you're trying to sell that to a customer, you might not know if, for instance, with leopard geckos, you might not know the difference between uh, an enigma and a white and yellow. And you might sell that to a customer as an enigma white and yellow. And I don't know how any breeder actually can sell that and say that they're sure about those genetics. It just doesn't make sense. Even with like snows or like, um, some of the other genetics, it's like really hard to even tell if mm. for sure, for sure, if something is a snow. Um, you can say, what I usually say now is I say snow for sure, or I say probable snow or possible snow, or, you know, it's in the genetics. So I think some of the other, the other reptiles out there, um, you guys do corn snakes, right? Which is eerily similar to what yeah, you're I think about. you guys are kind of getting there in that sense. Because um, no one's, no one's breeding back to normals or say, you know, to prove things out. Everyone's getting an animal, seeing the phenotype and trying to guess what genetics are, are in it instead of, you know, actually knowing the building blocks and the ingredients that are made or that are put together to make this animal. You'll get 10 different people in leopard geckos will tell you the albino, that strain that you got and they'll get five different answers, you know? So it's, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The background genetics play everything with that. So I've, I've, cause I do a lot of test breeding in this sense, because in leopard geckos, we, we test for all the albino strains. So if I'm selling a tangerine to somebody and I say, this is a pure tangerine, or say I'm selling a trimper albino to somebody, and I tell them it's pure, I've tested that against all the other albino strains to make sure that it's not. Because the leopard gecko world is all mixed up. There's a lot of people that try to make money really quick. And they went from, say, the earlier albino strains like Tremper and Rainwater, and then they went into, like, Bell albino. And to, to make a Bell albino um, have the Eclipse gene, which was in Tremper, um, which is like an eye pigment gene in leopard geckos, um, to add that in, they used to breed uh, what's called raptors or Tremper Eclipse um, in leopard geckos. So they used to breed those into um, bell albinos and then try to produce albinos out of that to create what's called radars now, um, but which is a bell eclipse. So three albino strains and leopard geckos, trimper, rainwater, bell. Um, they have trimper, which is the, with eclipse is called raptor with with uh bell it's called radar with uh rainwater it's called typhoon so they try to skip some steps and put that eclipse gene into radar or into bells real quick and all of a sudden you got a mix up so you get people that are breeding um bells together and they're actually getting they're not getting bell albinos they're getting trimper albinos out of that so, I mean, you can see why why they're confused though. You have three <laughs> strands of of, all, but, of, of albinism. Yeah. yeah, you're just asking for people to mess yeah. it up, right? Well, it's something to think about with other reptiles in general. If you got like, I didn't notice it when I was breeding boas, 
like the confusion and people being worried about that. But I'm sure with corn snakes, they got some things that are easily confused. And um, with, with leopard geckos, it's really common. And the fact that it's kind of like the fruit fly thing where fruit flies just produce real fast. With leopard geckos, we produce real fast. And so we realize the problems real quick with that kind of stuff. So that's why and it's also like with breeders like me, I can't compete with the big mill breeders that are producing hundreds of thousands of leopard geckos a year. So they might, you know, produce really nice stuff, you know, from visual, from a visual aspect, aspect but it's still not sound genetically. You don't know what's in it. You know, so you might have three different albinos in that, that gecko you get from PetSmart or wherever. Yeah, I was about to say, it might be something similar to where we see people get amazing corn. Actually, a guy today was just messaging us his snake from, from Petco. Amazing snake. I think it's like a four gene animal. But guess what, man? I don't know. I can't tell you what, what type of annery that is. I can't tell you what's going on there. And PetSmart's most no definitely way. not. So it's like, yeah, so we must have exactly the same thing in the same market. And I'm wondering kind of because obviously, you know, corn snakes, the wholesale market is a lot of people's bread and butter. They produce 10,000 corn snakes, 100,000, I don't know. But as someone who's kind of in the designer realm, like kind of somewhere where we fall in corn snakes as well, like how big is your collection? Hmm. I'm not huge, but I'm not small either. So I'm not a mill breeder. I'm the only employee, quote unquote. <laughs> so I I take care of everything. Um, I I keep a lot more babies than I do actually like breed adults. So like I have a lot of adults that I don't breed every year, and I kind of keep a genetic library. So I I have a lot of males and a lot of females and that way I have the choice every year and when I'm thinking about it like when I go to breed it's super focused you know I'm like on that like I you know if I'm not in the right mind to breed like geckos I just go and watch YouTube or do something else mm -hmm. when I'm ready to go I go for it and I have notes down and I think about things like there's a lot of stuff I've written down and I kind of, I don't know, like I really kind of, it's, it's, it's a zone where I, I go into and I pair up probably 30, 40 females at a time mm -hmm. uh, in that sense. And I have certain males where I know like, that's the male, like that's, that guy is going to get the job done. He's a good breeder. He's freaking unbelievable when it comes to what he produces and so I know that that male is going to be what I want to want to pair up with a lot of these females. But there's a lot of little side projects that I have that were I just am like, mm, see where this goes. Just try it, do it and figure it out like as it goes. And, you know, maybe I hatch out something cool. Maybe I don't. Usually I don't, you know, 99% of the time the. The babies are just like your average. I mean, everything I breed is pretty cool for the, for at this point, but there's a lot of stuff that doesn't produce anything spectacular. So, 
But when you're breeding like the best of the best of something else and you kind of know the lines really well, you do get a few things that are like really exceptional throughout the year. So yeah, it's fun. That's the that's the best part about it. Like I've I bred a lot of species of geckos and it's just the excitement of the incubator and seeing what's in it and seeing all the little geckos that hatch out each day like i'm in there with a flashlight like shining and seeing what's going on in there and you know if there's something new you know most of the time not of course but at the same time it's like really cool to see new geckos that hatch out and i know exactly my pairings when i ride on the deli cup that they hatch out of i know exactly what pairings come out of them so i'm like instantly i'm like that's what happened with those two, you know? So it's, it's fun. That's, that, it's exactly why I breed leopard geckos at this point. It's fast. It's instant gratification. Um, it's fun. Um, they're in your face. They're just like, this is what I am. And, you know, every year, if you're doing it full time, like I am, it becomes a lot of fun. So is that something to where obviously like you're seeing new things pop out? Do you mean like different variations of things that you haven't seen before that you may hold back and see like is something inheritable or are those kind of things, are they variable in that sense? Well, there's, there's definitely like for leopard geckos, a lot of it's line bread. So, or polygenic. Um, so you're just breeding an orange gecko to an orange gecko and you're seeing what comes of that. Hopefully a more orange gecko, you hold back, you breed it back. Um, there's, there's problems with that and there's things that are, that are fun about that. So the problem is that you could get to inbreeding really quick, but the fun of it is that you can produce some really cool stuff fast too. So I'm doing that constantly. So I'm constantly trying to, to breed the best stuff that I have and breed it to this line or that line. But when I have with leopard geckos, like or reptiles in general, you can inbreed them a long time and they're fine. But when you inbreed them too much, there's obviously issues. So when I try to sell to customers like, hey, this is a gecko genetics blood cross or whatever, and I sell it with a female i want to make sure that that animal is going to produce good geckos for that customer because i i think about it from my perspective and i'm like would i want to breed that is that some some pair that i want to breed is that something that's healthy is that something that the gecko is really going to be you know say and i got to think down the line too because a lot of these customers are going to take those babies and pair them together and sell them to another customer that's going to breed them together so um luckily let reptiles in general can breed and breed a lot before they have big issues but we are definitely victims in leopard geckos for the same factor that um leopard geckos are year to year from egg to egg so there's a lot of reasons to be careful about that so um for instance like some of the melanistic which are really like hyper melanistic or just like more dark colored than other geckos. Um, some of the lines are like black knight, black pearl, charcoal. Um, I've heard black velvet before, but I work with all of them, but 
the problem is if you're working with a line that's been worked with for 15 plus years, um, which one of the most popular lines is, I won't mention it by name because people get upset about it, but even uh, I know about it. I know about it only because we yeah. talked about it on another podcast. Yeah, really black little gecko, that little tiny black gecko that's super b- black. Dark as night. Like, wow, that's amazing. It's melanistic. It's amazing. Yeah, that thing's got genetic problems like you wouldn't believe. You probably, how many geckos uh, suffered because of that one gecko coming out? Right. So that's. Now that that gecko, that line that you're talking about is 20 years line bred, 20 years, and there are big issues with it. So when does line breeding turn into inbreeding? Like, like, you know, because every line is just means that it's inbred to a certain degree. So how do you make sure that that doesn't happen? I mean, what would you do if you had to start over again with something like that? Well, I wouldn't go that far for sure. I think it was about 13 years before they they released those. Um, but I have black pearl charcoals, which are separate from black knights, which I bred to black pearl shark or to black knights that have produced really dark animals, like right off the bat. So if I was just doing the black knights, like the dark geckos that everybody talks about, I would just say, try to breed it to a wild type that was as dark as possible, which um, my thought was about two years ago, which was uh, Eublepharis montanus, Eublepharis macularis montanus, which is not really probably a subspecies, but that's what it is in literature right now. But anyway, I would probably breed it to those in captivity because those are pretty dark. They're not snow, but they look like snows and they can probably add a lot of genetic diversity to that line. Now I say breed them to black pearl charcoal crosses. Black pearl charcoal crosses are not as dark. They're nowhere as like really like just solid melanistic like that other line is. But they add a lot of genetic uh, diversity to that line. And there's a lot of vigor that adds to that line with that. And that's everything that I'm doing with that line. I won't breed a pure black knight anymore, no matter what. Just too many problems. Just small females lay way too many, uh, way too less of eggs compared to what's normal, um, tons of issues. Because of the threat of inbreeding causing various problems, have you noticed um, an increase in the gecko community of people wanting to do like breeding loans and breeding projects and like trying to share more of what they have to kind of? No, I've always seen that, but it's very rare that I ever take anybody up on a, I don't do breeding loans no matter what anymore. Um, I get, sometimes I have a friend that will pressure me and try to be like, Hey, just send me this for that. You know, but I never do it anymore. And I'm sorry to that friend. If they ever upset about it, 
or whatever. I keep a very close collection now. I spent over $20,000 testing for crypto in my collection. So I sent out PCRs for every one of my breeder adults mm. at least at least four times for every female adult that I have now. So um, that's on a discount too. I like literally every one of my geckos uh, poops has been tested four times to test for crypto. Can you go over a little bit of the process? Because obviously in corn snakes, we're worried about crypto as well. So what's the process to get a collection like yours? I mean, all tested. Um, I'm sure animal gen. I don't know if it's exact same uh, strain of crypto as in, in leopard geckos. I think it's a different strain, and I think it's the the snake strain. But you can get them tested through Animal Genetics, which is a parrot. They they make most of their money through testing parrot um, like sex uh, DNA. Basically, they're they're testing for what sex the parrot eggs are or whatever. So you can send all your samples to them. So. With leopard geckos, if you want to send it to animal genetics, you take a dry piece of poop. Don't take a wet piece. You don't have to have a wet one. That's not necessary. It's DNA that we're talking about here. So it's not necessary that you have to, you don't have to have a live specimen. <laughs> the steamier, the better. <laughs> yeah, they actually prefer it to be dry, which yeah. I learned after the fact. But it makes it makes life a lot easier as well. So you can take a dry set. Uh, specimen you put it in my experience you put it in a bag you put it in another bag and you send it off to them and they list their prices I think it's about 25 bucks a test if you're doing a lot of tests you will get a discount you can call them and ask for that but um, I think at, at at like small amounts they're going to charge you the normal rate of course and you can test that out and they'll send you back the result and the problem with crypto is that it's not always 100 percent. you know it could be 80 percent um or so which is what i've kind of found so you got to throw it throw the test in there again so quarantine test for crypto Quarantine some more, test for crypto. I usually test anything I get in now three or four times. Mm. Wow. So how long exactly are they in quarantine? Um, I don't really buy many geckos anymore, to be <laughs> honest. It, it, I was buying a lot um, back in the day, but I just don't buy a lot anymore. I don't really have a need for a lot of geckos anymore. Most of the stuff I have is better like I'm not trying to be cocky or whatever about it, but I, I think a lot of the stuff I have is better than most stuff I see out there. And then just, there's just no reason, you know, for me to buy stuff when there's nothing new, you know? So. Right. And it seems like, I mean, at the point you've matured into your collection to where you're working with stuff that you have a particular eye for and you've bred for years in order to look exactly how you want it. So of course you're going to think that your animals are the best because they look exactly <laughs> to your specifications. I mean, you know, yeah, that's I, don't just be, I don't want to come across that way at all. There's a lot of cool geckos out there that I like a lot. There's just only so much, so many things you could work with is kind of the way I think of it. And at this point, it's like, 
I have I have a lot of nice geckos for sure, but most of the stuff like that I see out there, like it's you know, yeah, I could add that project, but I don't need another rack of the, of those geckos. You know, I have. And enough. I'm sure as a full time breeder, the risk of bringing in a new animal far exceeds the reward. I'm sure in many instances. With I mean, if one thing happens in your collection, I mean that's your livelihood. Yeah, I've learned I've learned a lot over that, those years because a lot of geckos have crypto. It's not a joke, mm-hmm. you know. It's you know for for the lab that I work with that tests tests the PCRs on uh, the the samples that I send them. They're they're telling me most most of the big chain stores have it like really common, you know, and it it. It just is common from what I've seen and I've I've tested out like it's very common. Some people don't think it is, but the problem the problem with crypto is it's very asymptomatic. So like some geckos will show it the problem, some will be just completely fine. They will never show an issue ever. And so you'll have I don't know if it's the same with corn snakes, but you have if it was like a gecko would always show the problem right away or you know not eat or whatever it'd be really easy to you know separate those out and you know keep them away from your collection but you know if if there's a male that like for instance like a lot of males don't have a problem with eating at all they'll just keep eating and eating and they'll just be really healthy and then they get if they had crypto for instance they would breed all your females if you were one of those breeders that just paired a ton of males to females you just infect your whole collection mm. and it's it's tough because of that situation it's very asymptomatic and it's a big problem for sure yeah same thing same thing in corn snakes same similar things to nido in carpet pythons moralia even ball pythons you see it seems to be dormant you know there's no way to detect it and then even some of the tests you know they don't work unless they are i forget what the uh the term is but basically they can only the you can have an animal test negative and then positive mm-hmm. and then False negative positive. Positive, and all over the place yeah, um, I've had that too. The crypto, it's back and forth. And I've had males sit on the side. I still have them, actually. They tested positive like five years ago. And then I just keep them on the side and keep testing them. Yeah. And now, is that um, is like a 100% positive? Is that something no. that you got to call? No. I mean, That's the worst part, too. It's like 100% positive. When they say positive, it's definitely not positive. Hmm. And I thought from the beginning, and I was like, okay, if they're positive, they're doing a DNA test here. It's a PCR test. They're like actually amplifying the DNA here. It doesn't work that way for some reason. And I I started packing, like when I would put those fecal samples in a bag, I would put them in one bag and then another bag and then another bag before I send it off to them. So I was like, there's no possible way they're getting them like mixed up. So either A, they're getting mixed up at the lab somehow, mm-hmm. or B, they're just, you know, it's not definite. Who knows? Yeah. Okay, this might be a dumb question. Is That's it, how all good questions start. Obviously. The Best. more people that are sending in 
these collections of feces? Is that <laughs> creating a better, more accurate result? Mm, no, because, well, for one, well, 99% of leopard gecko breeders are not sending any, anything in. You know, it's just the fact of the matter. I know for a fact because I talk to the guy regularly and he's like, there's a vet from from the big chain pet stores from each side of it that sends it in. But other than that, nobody sends in anything. Uh. I know a few people send in like a random sample here or there, but not going to do anything. And I think it's it's unfortunate that most people are going to get their first gecko from those people and <laughs> they're going to have a negative first experience, which is unfortunate because that should be an animal that, you know, that could, is a great yeah. beginner animal and they should have a good experience with. Yeah. It's part of the problem with leopard geckos. Like if you have a disease like that, that goes through, through the collection and takes out a lot of the collection, you know, it's a, it's a bad first experience, you know, and a lot of people get upset about it. So, um, I don't know what to say. It's it's a problem for sure. But if you can buy from good sources and not, you know, if you're not buying from your local chain store and doing your your homework, you will figure it out. And, you know, it's a fun species to work with. I don't have any problems anymore. No, no problems like that. Like I used to deal with, you know, and it was... It was from other breeders for sure. Like I would get geckos from other breeders that just had issues. Mm. Yeah. And I hope that at least at the very least we can take an example since the leopard gecko breeding. I mean, you guys are so mature in the, as far as you've gone much further, obviously, because like you mentioned, your animals breed quicker. So you can kind of be an example of things like inbreeding, what not to do for us going forward, biosecurity, obviously, crypto, NIDO, all the things that are in our captive animals. I mean, it seems like all of those problems are showing through and it's kind of a little bit scary. It seems like it's like one of the biggest issues facing the hobby from a like keeping standpoint, keeping a breeding standpoint. Yeah, it's for sure. It's for sure an issue. And I mean, some people... They don't worry about it much, and, but, you know, there's a lot of people that go through leopard geckos really quick, and you can kind of find the ones that are just in it for the money or whatever reason they're in it for. They think they're in it for the money, I guess I should say it. So it's not an easy – it's not an easy business. Like, I mean, any any reptile is not an easy business. You got to really have a passion for the the animals first you know, before you go into the the money aspect of it, I guess. So, yeah, well, let's move on to uh, brighter things other than pressing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <that's pretty> <laughs> so uh, are you keeping I know people back in the day used to keep breeding groups, but it seems like people kind of moved away from that. Um, how do you keep as far as individuals and then breeding? Um, so what I recommend to beginners, which is almost everybody that's going to be listening to this, I recommend keeping females by themselves. So I don't recommend pairing up females with multiple females. Um, I recommend you can keep a male with female the whole year. Just watch them closely. Um, 
But you can have issues when you start pairing up a lot of females in one bin. Like most, a lot of breeders do like three females and one male for every 32 quart uh, tub. And that ends up being a lot of issues. A lot of biting, a lot of pulling off tails, a lot of, I mean, yeah, they're probably going to survive. They're going to live through a, a tail that falls off, you know, but. For the most part, one one female, uh, if you're going to breed the female, put them in with the male um, one time a year for a week or so. Um, and then other than that, you know, keep them by themselves. They don't want to be with other gaggos. Trust me. <laughs> they prefer it. They hate other gaggos. It's like <laughs> some, we always we always think like, oh, they want some a friend or whatever it's not that way with geckos for sure geckos want to be alone and they want to have their spot where they can just chill and relax they just want to relax all the time <laughs> no other jerks hanging around them you know <laughs> yeah yeah and do i mean do you find that males i mean can you stretch them too thin do you need to be kind of sparse with uh, who you put them in with mm. Yeah, the males can if you, if you get a male that so a first year male for instance will have some issues um usually usually they don't cuz I transition first year males from mealworms to superworms or dubia um if there's almost every gecko takes the dubia quick but the problem is dubia is tough to breed enough and tough to buy enough if you're doing a large collection so i try to transition enough of them to uh superworms where i don't have to worry about that but sometimes i'll take a first year male put them with a female that will only take dubia and all of a sudden he gets hooked on it too what? And I'll throw him in with another female that wants to only take superworms, and so he won't eat as much. So, but at the same time, they always go back to mealworms if I if I ever take them back to that. Um, and you know, dubia is always an option too. The leopard geckos have to get super, super thin before they won't take anything else. And a lot of people think that they have to be super fat and like every, like, it's just not the case. Leopard geckos like, and naturally they're, they're thin and they're, they're eating whatever they can. The fact is that when we get them in captivity and we feed them something, they just, you know, like with dubia, they're just taking to it because it's a really nice prey source and it's what they love and they're going to eat a ton of it, you know? So they'll take superworms at a point and it's still healthy. A leopard gecko that's thin, not overly thin is healthy still. As long as it's gotten to the point where it's ready to eat like superworms or dubia or whatever. Are there any like visual markers on what makes a skinny gecko slash fat gecko? So not really, but if you see a gecko that really gets like kind of like an, uh, 
a dull appearance to it or the tail like really shrivels up and it's kind of like uh i don't know wrinkly i guess would be the the way to describe it if you get a tail on the gecko shrivelly and like to that extent yeah that gecko is probably dealing with something else rather than just hunger strike or that it's ovulating because female a lot of people don't this is the big problem with leopard geckos too is like a lot of people that are new to reptiles they get a leopard gecko and they'll get a female and they'll get a female right in the the breeding season so they'll get one that's ovulating and that female will not eat it won't eat for me it won't eat for you it won't eat for anybody it's <laughs> fat still and you don't realize it because you don't know what a leopard gecko looks like in the wild a leopard gecko in the wild looks like a really skinny like shriveled tail gecko but in the wild it doesn't care about food or anything at that point um and people freak out about it. And it's like, your gecko's still super fat. Don't worry. You know, it's going to go through about two to three months where it's ovulating. And then it's going to kick out of it. And then it's going to eat a ton for you. So I, that's that's every year. I, I put an extra, like, note in my shipments for every gecko that I think that's going through that. And that way... Most of the new customers or new people that don't understand leopard geckos understand that, you know. I'm not freaking out. Yeah. Reptiles in general are not going to eat as much as your pet gerbil or pet whatever. <laughs> yeah. Many are seasonal. You know, many have, whether it's males looking for mates or females, you know, going through their own cycle. So you got to be cognizant of that. And are, is it important or do you, you know, breed your own? insects or breed your own food yeah i used to breed everything which is very tough and so the one thing that takes a lot of breeders out is allergies and mm-hmm. uh, allergies to mealworms allergies to superworms and, and dubia in general will take a lot of breeders out i'm very lucky that i haven't had those those issues but I wear a mask. Um, I have a ventilation system in my my shop. Um, I'm constantly pulling air in and out. Um, I make it a big point to not breathe in much of that. Do we know exactly what's making people, you know, have allergic reactions to it? <laughs> not exactly. I, I know a lot of people have taken, you know, David – from David's Fine Geckos, who you should have, used to have a podcast like yours, mm-hmm. just completely out because of those allergies. You know, wow. um, Sassabek, um, Paul, Paul Allen, um, a, lot of, a lot of people I know, like smaller breeders too, you know, just, just completely out. Because it seems like some people are more prone to it than others. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't have, I've been breeding my own feeders for a long time and I haven't had an issue yet. I take a lot of precautions though. Um, just cause I know that they can, they can cause problems, but I don't have the allergies for sure. So I wear a mask every day that I work with feeders. I wear a mask when I'm working with my reptiles and, 
in general. I have a big shop fan that's blowing through tons of air real quick. So it's pulling up all the, uh, you know, the calcium and all that other stuff that's in the air. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have uh, big issues with that and it takes them out of the hobby. So it's not, it's not something to take lightly. If you have an issue with reptile feeders, it's definitely not the, not the side of the hobby you should take because dubia mealworms are number one to take people out. And it seems like in, at least in corn snakes, probably in leopard geckos too, it's so important to control the price and also the availability of your food. So like breeding your own is so pivotal. I know for us to at least have some mice on hand just to make sure. Yeah. Well, with leopard geckos, I was breeding my own for a while, but um, at this point, um, I, I don't breed any of my worms anymore. Um, I, I breed, I get them all from uh, rainbow mealworms and then I get them in, I got load them and I kind of feed them right before I feed them my, my geckos, but I don't breed any of those anymore. My goal is to breed all my, my dubia that I need, but it's been really hard. I, I breed a lot of dubia, but <laughs> it's just really tough to keep up with the numbers. So with the leopard geckos, I kind of find that every adult leopard gecko will take to dubia, but they won't take to a superworm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I breed as many dubia as I can. Um, if there's a if there's a leopard gecko that absolutely won't take to a superworm, I'll give it dubia, and then I'll mark the tub and it says dubia at that point. But you know, it's it's. It's tough, you know, it you gotta buy a lot. I buy at least six hundred dollars worth of feeders every every month. You know? Whoa, even though you breed oh yeah. Dubia. If I didn't breed, it would be probably close to a thousand. Mm. But it's actually not terrible to be honest, since for a collection. I mean, we probably spend <laughs> we do know, not spend six hundred dollars a time month at, this time of the year with babies and stuff like that maybe but well that's the thing you gotta think about too though is like i don't every mealworm i get in so if i order like i just ordered six thousand of them uh for this next week and i will probably get the use out of forty thousand of them because a lot of them die Me- geckos don't want to eat anything dead or somewhat like not moving so mm-hmm. with with snakes you can go and defrost a rodent all day and if one doesn't eat you can feed it to the next or whatever you know but with leopard geckos it's just in the trash every time yeah you waste so much of it Mm -hmm. it's it's a lot of expense thrown down the drain i won't i won't refeed any feeders that are been in another leopard geckos tank anymore so or enclosure and that's one another, you know, controlling parasites and other things, you know, way method. But so I guess there's not really any sort of uh, reprieve for people who want to have a leopard gecko but have issues with the um, hierarchy of life and feeding 
Uh, yeah, you got to feed live. Yeah, because a lot of, we get that a lot of times. People are like, oh, I really want a corn snake, but like I can't feed it a mouse. Uh, it goes to me out. And we always direct them to Rappy Links. But you're saying like with geckos, you suck it up or you don't get one, basically. Uh, leopard geckos, you're feeding bugs. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people don't have any kind of problem with feeding the. You, know, you, might, you might feel a little sad about. <laughs> for instance, I don't feel very sad about feeding the dubia roach to a leopard gecko but yeah i do it a little bit like i don't know it's just i think it's it's part of human nature not to feel a little weird about feeling uh feeding a live rodent to or especially a pinky we used to feed pinkies to leopard geckos really i mean it's still possible a lot of some breeders do um, you don't need to. It's definitely not necessary, but some some leopard geckos breed or feed pinkies to their females that are breeding, but not necessary for supplementing them, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and that's a very uh, healthy perspective rather than those people on Facebook who are throwing up videos and acting like they're super happy when their snake wraps up a live <laughs> mouse. So, um yeah, it shows that you're not a sociopath. That's always good. So in the wild, are geckos always eating live things? <laughs> yep, pretty much. They're uh so Eubulpharis, which is basically all leopard geckos. Um, there's multiple species under that genus, but they're feeding on mostly like sulfigids, which are like your kind of like camel spiders. If you've ever seen those, those little ugly things from Arizona, but they have those in the Middle East as well. Um, spiders, uh, beetles, uh, all kinds of things that they're eating in, at night. So, um, yeah, they're eating they're eating lots of different prey items. So it's it's only live. They don't eat any plants out there. It's pretty. <laughs> it's it's desert to uh, semi arid. Um, they're not they're not going for anything. It's in the tropical environment. No fruits out there for sure. And I mean, is that a part of contention as far as the the leopard go, especially some, I guess, some of the rare species that you're working with? The fact that, I mean, they're found in places like Afghanistan and in the Middle East where there's conflict and maybe, you know, herpetologists don't necessarily go there as readily and do the research Mm -hmm. on them or people aren't exactly exporting for new blood. I mean, do you see that as a... Hinders. You know, it hinders the uh, the hobby as far as getting new blood as well as research. Well, so what the the stuff that I did that had to do with like those new species was a long time ago. For one, um, two, the there's only like two biologists that even care about that at all. And maybe one even cares about it now, and he's super old. So, and I've read all his books too. So, like, I don't know. I'm not really that worried about it. The I actually worked with the real biologists that are doing this stuff that collected these animals. Now, um, we were talking about Angermanu and Tfuscus and Hardwicki. I worked with the actual real biologists that are doing the work now. So. No biologists in the U.S. are doing anything at the at this point. Um, um, we're caught in a little bit of a weird state with those um, areas. So biologists from the past can't really work there. 
um, biologists that are from other countries like Russia can, um, which I've dealt with. And then now a lot of biologists from India are working with those species. So, yeah, no, nobody really cares. <laughs> it's not it's not that exciting to them. And I care more about them than they do. So, I mean, what are they going to say to me <laughs> at this point? I will tell – I've actually worked with a biologist who's working under Aaron Bauer – which is one of the leading biologists in the U.S. that's working on phylogenetics within the genus, and he and he has found a lot of information from what I have told. So I mean, they're not upset with me. <laughs> how did the lines of these different giggles? I mean, how did they originate in the U.S. and how do you know that they're pure? You know, at least to the best of your knowledge. Well, I don't know, like. So the subspecies, quote unquote, from Macularis, which Macular Eublepharis Macularis is like your leopard gecko, um, or scientific name or whatever Latin name. Um, those those are not known for sure, for sure. But we know that they generally range from Pakistan up to Afghanistan, uh, up into India a little bit. Most of them were collected from lower um, Pakistan. Um, we have Angramanu, which was uh, collected from um, from uh, Iran. So Zagros Mountains up into Syria and Turkey. Turkey. Um, and so they live pretty much everywhere in that range. And we have a lot of different localities in that range. Um, most of mine are from in the Iran uh, area. And then we have Turk, uh, Eublepharis Turkmanicus, which is from uh, lower Turkmenistan, uh, northern Iran. We have Macularis, which is leopard geckos, which is Pakistan, uh, northern um, Afghan or up into Afghanistan a little bit, but east, never east, sorry, uh, western uh, Pakistan, which is kind of like Montanus and some of the other quote unquote localities or subspecies, depending on who you're talking to. Um, up into the Himalayas of India, which would be still Macularis. And then when you get into India, they go into Eublepharis fuscus, which is on the west side of India. And then the east side of India, you have uh, Eublepharis hardwicki. And then the middle, kind of in the tiger reserves, um, Hard to say where the boundary is because nobody really knows at this point. And it's something I've been working on a long time, just based off of pictures people have posted and stuff. But in the middle, in like Satpura Tiger Reserve, um, in, in Melgot Tiger Reserve, there's a species now called Sapurensis. So Eublepharis Sapurensis. Nobody, I've heard of some people having those in the hobby now. It's probably smugglers, but I mean, one of those things. I'm not, 
I'm not super interested in, in them at this point. Um, they're they're cool, but are these common animals in the wild? Mm, I mean, if you're in those areas, yeah. <laughs> but with with you got to look at how they're divided up natural, like their natural boundaries are. So macularis is completely. It has a big boundary in Pakistan, um, up into Afghanistan. That's a huge boundary. It's a it's a a big species that's allopatric like separation from, say, for instance, Angermanu. Angermanu is in the Zagros Mountains, which is Iran, Turkey, and Syria. And for some reason, those have never been imported into the U.S. So maybe just conflicts with the countries or whatever but everything we've got with leopard geckos is really just eublepharus macularis from pakistan but i've been working with angermani which i've have a few different localities i have kerman shaw um choga um which is a kuzakstan locality um, Meshed Soliman, which is a Kuzistan locality, Elam, which is another locality, and there's more to come for sure. Like, uh, if there were biologists collecting them, there would be like 10 more at least. Yeah, I've never even heard of half the places that half you're the saying. countries, let alone yeah. in, uh, no the area or cities. So, if you think you're a normal leopard gecko in Pakistan, which is kind of like, eh whatever, 40, 50 grams at maturity. You're thinking about a, a anger monu in, uh, in Iran that's 80, 90, 100 grams at maturity, and they mature at almost two and a half years where leopard geckos mature at uh, 10 months or so. Very big differences in those species. So they kind of look the same when you're looking them looking at them online but they're very different in person so things like the the giants i don't know if they're exactly called that but i think they are they the the, the large leopard geckos, <laughs> i guess um are they actually pure just bred to the largest gecko to the largest gecko or are they like a hybrid to make them huge like these like the angry manu um so they are most likely because the problem with a giant morph in general, if you had it with any reptile, is trying to figure out if it's really like recessive or um, incomplete dominant or whatever. It's it's very difficult to figure out if it's you know one of those or just polygenic or you know whatever. Um, giant, I feel after breeding them for eight ten years or so. I kind of feel like they're recessive. So I feel like they happen when you have those large geckos from a certain breeder. And it, but it could be, it could be just line bread. You know, that's the honest truth of it. It could be just line bread. It's just almost impossible to like really figure out because it's not like an albino where you can say like, this is it, you know, or not. Right. It's just like size, and a lot of people breed um, for oversized geckos. Sometimes people breed, you know, 
the the line breed for oversized geckos. They're just producing like the biggest thing they can. So it's it's tough. But I've seen like when I try to buy directly from the source and only breed those geckos from the source, um, it's produced really large geckos. But when I cross them to other stuff, it just kind of produces whatever. So that's why I kind of say recessive. But hard to say 100%. Now, Never going to be like one of those, you know, some people try to say, oh, it's 100% uh, incomplete dominant or co-dominant back then. But whatever. <laughs> All Python guys are still running with the co-dom thing. Co-dom. You guys. Um, so are there differences in keeping other than just obviously them being the size yeah <laughs> is there a difference in keeping these animals well i do i i i do a lot of things different probably than any other breeder out there and it's just because i figured out things myself so i learned as much as i could from other breeders and then i i keep and do things just that makes sense to me. And um, yeah, there's a lot of differences in keeping. Um, some people think that you need to keep them in really large enclosures for one. I, I, I kind of feel, I really, it's kind of a weird thing with leopard geckos. They really like lo smaller enclosures. I don't know why. It may be the fact that in the wild, they want to be in the smallest cramped space as possible. Like, if you could picture yourself as having reverse claustrophobia, like, that's leopard geckos. You need it. Like, if you had stuff around you and, like, enclosing you, and then, like, you know, I, I have males that will stop feeding and stop doing anything. And then I throw them in the smallest enclosure possible. I'll throw them in a six quart tub. And all of a sudden they're like booming and they're like ready to go. I don't think it's a permanent situation. Like it's hard to like be completely behind that, but yeah. Um, babies hate open space. A lot of information online is wrong. And of course with anything with reptiles related, but yeah, it's uh I try to, I, I'm trying to keep my females in bigger in, in setups, um, just in general. And then my males just, I think males just, they, all they want is eat and breed. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you, males, of course. if you were to have them in a bigger enclosure, but if you had more like hiding spots, do you think you would still have those feeding issues? No, no, for sure not. I, I I have a lot of males in bigger enclosures, and they just want to eat and breed. That's it. Males, I'm not saying females. Females, I think they do appreciate a little bit more space um, with the enclosure. And I try to keep females in a 32 quarter above, and I'm probably going to expand that. Um, just because of what I found. So I want to I want to keep them in – I mean, it's just human nature to keep them in a bigger enclosure than possible, you know, what they want. But um, as long as they have a, a moist hide, they want to be in small spots. They just – that's – their biology is that 
They live in the wild where it's a hot, desert, arid environment. And when they get to, they, they, they spend their days in a crack or a crevice in the, in underneath the roots or something where it's really humid and, and at night they come out and that's it. That's, they don't spend their days out in the middle of the, the heat, you know? So. And it seems like this would be something where like the microclimate is more important than, you know, the macro. Cause you would think obviously barren place, it would be, you know, you wouldn't have humidity, but underneath those rocks or in crevices and stuff, you know, it's a different story. Yeah, for sure. Uh, they need humidity more than, you know, people freak out about too much humidity on leopard geckos. I've never seen a gecko get a respiratory issue um, ever, you know, so give them as much humidity as you can. The shed, shedding issues like their their toes don't shed is a way bigger issue than, you know, humidity. So. They spend their whole days in a crevice, the super humid, under roots, under rocks. It's the most humid spot of the desert. And then when the when night comes, they come out and it's humid and not too hot, you know? So it's humid all the time for them. Speaking of enclosures, do you feel that the, like, enclosure that is sold to most, like, Beginner left the starter kit of Petco. Right, right. Do you feel like the enclosure that's sold to most beginner leopard gecko keepers is up to the quality it should be? Like for corn snakes, we especially talk about like um corn snakes ex- escape very, very easily. And most of the enclosures that are sold are escapable. Like there's there's not something or so like a ball python in a fish tank instead of a rat. Right, right, whatever that is. So do you feel like the you know what is being mass produced for leopard geckos? is what it should be um no not at all actually um when somebody usually somebody talks about the the enclosure they're getting it's usually a tank or a exoterra which unless you live in like south florida is not going to be humid enough you know you need more humidity for pretty much any gecko out there and so um, I recommend something that's going to be enclosed a little bit more, um, has an under tank heater. I actually recommend, uh, I think it's HP Herbs. Uh, let me see if I can even, you can kind of see the tank in the background there. I like that. Yeah. I got one from them, but, um, yeah, it's enclosed as an under tank heater, which is not connected like directly to the floor. It's it's spaced out a little bit, so it's got um, a little room to breathe. Um, that works out really good. So you don't have like the humidity loss, and you got enough heat underneath that's coming up, so the leopard geckos can, you know, it, leopard geckos are bulletproof. So almost anything you do is going to work. Just don't dry them out. Um, don't screw up the supplementation. Give them enough uh, calcium, you know, vitamin D, vitamin A, and don't don't screw up the humidity. So give them a good moist tide on the hot side. And other than that, you're not going to – it's really hard to mess them up. But Despite yeah. saying that, and this might be a noob question, um, are there obvious signs – 
for a lack of vitamin A or lack of vitamin D? Like what is the initial sign? Yeah, of that? It's actually a really good question because vitamin A, um, when you're breeding, you will notice it as uh, eye issues. So you'll see an eye that's um, like the eye. Leopard geckos have eyelids. One of the few species of geckos that actually have eyelids that actually close completely. So um, if you have a lack of vitamin A, that eyelid will be missing or deformed or small. Mm. So vitamin A is very closely associated with, uh, with eye issues. Um, and for the most part, reptiles in general. So, I mean, if you have a reptile that has a vitamin or an eye issue in general, probably something to do with vitamin A. Something to think about at least. Um, but with leopard geckos, for sure, if you have a lack of vitamin A in their in their supplementation, um, eyelid issues are first to come in babies that hatch out. Um, other issues that can happen with their eyelids. So, yeah, for sure. Um, vitamin D, well, you have to have that to um, to uh, use the the calcium that you're giving the geckos. So if you don't have vitamin D3, then it's not working. Right. Um, the weird thing about leopard geckos, I've tried so many different vitamin supplements and so many different things. And this, I mean, you want, you want something that has a lot more science about it or a lot more research done to work. But when it comes down to it, Osteoform and Vionate mix 50-50 just always works better than everything. And it's stupid because it's yeah, it's a horse vitamin. I get it. And people don't want to use like, you know, they want to use a more scientific, like whatever. That's Mark, been- something that's marketed to them specifically for that. Yeah. What all it is is marketing with less research <laughs> and money behind it. It just, it just comes, maybe there's more research. Maybe there's more marketing. I don't know. What comes down to it is what works. And yeah. it's what works. And vi- osteoform especially. Whatever's in osteoform, I use it from 50% to up to 80%, depending on when the females are laying and the babies are hatching. Always, always good results. Everything else I've tried... I've tried the highest end vitamins you can buy out there. Everything that you can imagine, nothing works good. So, you know, it it comes down to, A, do you want to, you know, (laughs) try to figure out something new? And I, I, for me, it's just, I really want to do the best for my geckos. And I work hard to like do the gut load and all that other stuff. And it just, the vitamins supplementation. This is one of those things I just got to give up and say, Hey, this works. This always works. Nothing else worked. So. Right. And I saw on social media somewhere that you were gut loading. I don't know. The, the preparation for this gut load <laughs> is just absolutely ridiculous. So can you kind of explain some of that? No. Um, so I'm, that's a little excessive. So what you were <laughs> not normal but 
it's kind of one of those things where I'm interested in something that's like, maybe I shouldn't be that interested in it, but like gut loading and kind of got, became my interest for a little while, you know, not, not so much the breeding of geckos. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I just researched a lot about what I should be. I'm gut loading for a lot of geckos. So I'm doing big bales of it every time. I have a uh, hundred pound plus um, tubs of gut load that I, I make every time. I've had that that grinder for a while and I used to just grind chicken layer mash for a while, you know, just kind of your generic, like whatever um, gut load and just research it more. Um, a lot of it's, uh, so on that gut load, basic mix would be chicken layer mash, like 16, 18%, somewhere around there. Organic, if possible. Wait, yeah. Wait back it up. Sorry. What is chicken layer mash? I'm in my head, I'm like, as you talk <laughs> about mashed potato, like what? <laughs> you got to go even further back. <laughs> so when you're feeding chickens, <laughs> Chickens and reptiles have a lot of similarities. So, like, you can assume if something's the science has been done on chickens, it's probably been done like it's pretty close to reptiles. So, that being said, um, I used to just do chicken layer mash, which layer just means like the females laying eggs. Um, so, they would feed that to the, the laying females. Um, 18%, 16% means the amount of protein in it, um, which can vary. I try to go a little higher protein just because I add uh, ingredients that are lower protein. Um, the problem with dubia is if you get too high a protein, you can actually cause gout in your geckos. This is farther along, but um, just lower amounts of protein for your dubia is good even though they might appreciate more protein, they might produce more with more protein, you want a little less. Just uh, if you're using them as a staple for like your geckos or beer dragons or whatever, you don't want gout. Um, so I use a base of like organic chicken layer, about 16 to 18%, um, alfalfa, uh, dandelion, um brewer's yeast um marigold what store are you shopping at <laughs> what? Gut yeah is there a gut loading store that you're buying all these ingredients okay so for all the people that are weirded out by this just go to like uh chameleon forums and like look up like sandra's chameleons like she does a lot of work on uh different gut load like ideas and stuff like that you want your like anti-nutrients like oxalates and some of those other things would be lower um general gut load by like uh pro gut load from uh supreme geckos uh something like that i don't remember but it's like pro gut load or oh, pro reptiles pro reptiles supreme pro gut load <laughs> uh, Chicken crack or cricket crack. <laughs> there's a couple others. Anyway, they're basically buying the same stuff. I'm telling you. So um, buy that stuff. Um, 
In, I mean, you don't have to, you don't even have to do that. I just, I'm doing it on such a big scale that, you know, I figure, I don't know, something I'm interested in, stupid, I guess. <laughs> but yeah. I, I try to give my geckos the best possible, the mealworms the best possible. And it's weird. I'm not actually feeding the geckos that stuff. I'm feeding the mealworms that right. I give to the geckos that stuff. So. so are you blending all that stuff up? Yeah, it's that big blender you saw on YouTube or whatever I posted it on. And I blend it all up. Key is don't blend it. Like, don't use like a bread grinder. Like, don't use a flour grinder or anything. Because you're going to make that that material too small. And it's going to clog the pores on the mealworms. Use uh, uh, some type of grinder that makes it kind of a little bit, you know, thicker. Where they can run through it. I know it's kind of weird, but mealworms will die if you get like powder around their pores and stuff. It's kind of like any any insect. They get like they clog their pores. It's how they breathe, basically. So if you throw a ton of calcium around them or gut load around them, you're gonna kill them off. So, that's so you gotta get them. You gotta get them a little loose. So what I do is I I make that that mix and then I mix in a little uh, like. Uh, we brand or something that's going to be a little more looser and they can kind of float through it. Yeah, weird. I get it. <laughs> Doesn't make sense, but you trust me, you'll appreciate it when it comes down to it. This reminds me of our podcast episode with Dorian, and he's right. crazy on the food going level. to Asian markets and getting crawfish. A certain oh. He goes way crazier than just getting caught, you know, like, but stuff I think that um, sometimes there's like just more layers of things to geek out about. And like you kind of, you know, breeding geckos is probably not your challenge at the moment. You probably got that down pretty well. You'd be surprised, though, like doing the stupid stuff like that I'm doing. My production numbers go up. <laughs> and so I realized that I'm doing things. I'm think I'm doing things right, you know. Like I'm, I'm perfecting it. You know, I do a lot of things I won't even tell you about on the air, but uh, <laughs> secrets. <laughs> um, nah, you get to play around a little bit. Yeah, it, it, if if you're doing this and you don't experiment, you're not doing it right. Trust me, it, you got to experiment and figure out what work. Like what I'm saying doesn't work for everybody, and. I experiment all the time and it's what's, it's what's made it work for me. So mm. even I, you guys do corn snakes or whatever it is, you know, you got to figure out what makes you more efficient. What makes you, you know, what makes the gecko or the snakes thrive, whatever it is, you know. Yeah, and that's something to where like every year you have obviously, you can test things out, but you got to kind of follow the recipe the first couple times by the book. Then you got it down and then you start getting, getting a little weird it's once funky. you got that down. At least that's what I did. And it seems like you probably, you probably did something similar as well. Yeah. I don't do anything like, I guarantee no breeder of my size does it stuff like I do at all. <laughs> Not even close. So I give I give little tips and tricks to like some of my friends in the hobby that I want to succeed. Cause there's some guys that are like, they're just like, Oh, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. This is it. And I'm like, 
all right, here's the trick, figure it out, <laughs> you know, but it, it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of people just don't want to innovate and figure it out. And it's not that hard for me. I, I just always try to figure out a better way, you know, better mousetrap to figure it out, you know? So. Uh, as far as experimenting with like uh, babies and everything, we kind of have our own, this we've done of like, okay, when they don't eat this, we try this, we try this. Do you have like a kind of list of things you go down when they're not taking those uh, typical food items or different things you do? Or are they all perfect little eating angels? <laughs> um, with leopard geckos, they don't eat um, 100%. So it's kind of one of those things where you just have to. So all of them will take to mealworms, but you kind of just have to force feed them that or not force feed them just um like make them realize that that's what they're going to want to eat so once once they eat it once they're going to take to it for sure um occasionally you'll have a baby gecko that won't take to it and you kind of just have to like rub the mealworm on its like side of its mouth and it'll finally get it'll get the scent of it and it'll eat but for the most part, leopard geckos are pretty easy. It's not it's not hard like snakes and a lot of stuff. It's just pretty simple to figure it out. So yeah. And are there are there any new like um oh man, are there any morphs that you work in particular that are you know unique to you or that may have originated in your collection? Um so with leopard geckos, there's there's line bread stuff which would be like polygenic stuff. Um, so basically bring, breeding like an orange gecko to an orange gecko, you produce another orange gecko. Um, or bold, for instance, like breeding a bold stripe to a bold stripe and you produce another bold stripe. Um, some of those lines are called specific names, which are like line bread traits. But... Um, it's kind of hard with leopard geckos because there's a lot of different names for all the different lines out there. So people, it's easy to get confused. So if I was to tell you like, oh, this is an electric or this is a blood or this is a uh, inferno or this is a gecko genetics or this is a mandarin, you would have no idea like what I'm talking about right now. Nope. <laughs> all those things actually equal a um, tangerine leopard gecko, which is just lime bread for orange color. But they're different lines of them. So, what do you work with most uh, corn snakes? Or yeah, mm -hmm. we work with some other things, but yeah. So, if somebody came out with a corn snake it was little orange, and they called it like, uh, I don't know. Vitamin C, <laughs> whatever, uh, or, you know, the nectarine or whatever. But they're all from the same line. That's kind of how we feel in leopard geckos. So it's, it's, yeah, some of the lines deserve names and most of them don't. We've actually been talking about that a lot lately. And I feel very strongly that most of the 
names don't deserve anything. Well, people want to market their animals right off the bat and say this is something unique to them. So yeah. it's more of a... Yeah, I, I get it. You know, it's hard to like tell people no as well. Um, if I marketed every single tangerine that I had, like I'd have like 20, 40 of them that I would say are like unique. totally unique and different crosses. And like, do you take a, a like an electric, uh, um, a leopard gecko and cross it to a blood and then call it something new? No, you, you should call it electric blood cross unless it's completely different looks completely different preach preach, preach. <laughs> yeah exactly so it's it's got to just completely look different and it's got to be something new um got to be something that you've worked on for a lot of years exactly you can't pop out one and be like oh look like yeah. no that's you're not how life it. works so whatever problem you're working with with corn snakes it's like 50 times worth worth worse with leopard geckos. So there's a lot of people coining their new line name or whatever it is. Some of them stick. And I've kind of come to the, the, the idea that if it's worth it, it will stick. And I'm not going to hate on people that make a new name because it's just not going to stick with the, the community. So there's a lot of drama, just like with any other... You know, reptile. There's a ton of drama with leopard geckos, so I just try to stick with stuff that's gonna really stick with the hobby. And what um, is this, um cipher stuff that I'm seeing all over your Facebook? What is that exactly? Um, so one of the rare occasions where we get an actual new base morph, um, and it's a little strange that I actually hatched this out of my collection so um i don't breed to i don't i'm not a mass scale breeder or a mill breeder you know where most of these morphs come out of so either they come out of wild caught animals or they come out of mill breeders for the most part it's just a sheer like like numbers game um if you hatch something out that's a new morph out of your collection it's kind of like winning the lottery so the guys that get like the new morse are either getting some wild wild animals that are showing it or they have big big collections um but i test breed a lot and i uh cross a lot of stuff and i'm always checking things out and i probably have a better eye than a lot of people about things so in 2015 i caught these a uh, couple geckos that came out of a certain project that that were just totally weird and they had um a reverse stripe solid eyes um color enhancer came came later on um but yeah ended up since 2015 testing them out and working with them um i got a full-blown uh recessive you know i mean this is like recessive like paul buys it by or what are what are some other recessives out there like trimper albino or rainwater albino or i don't know so it's full-blown recessive 
that's coming out of leopard geckos, which is a big deal. Not a line bred, not a polygenic morph. You know, everybody's got a polygenic. <laughs> is this like, uh, I don't know how long or how often like new morphs come on the block. Right, for is it one in a million or? Yeah, like how oh, yeah. often are you seeing? Oh, yeah. If it, maybe even more. Because back in the day when they were importing them from uh, Pakistan, they were coming in on numbers. And the, the morphs were coming in with imports. So you get somebody local that would see an albino or whatever it was and import it. So all the morphs came in originally as imports. It's just kind of like ball pythons, you know. You got to kind of think of it as ball pythons imports just completely stopped. And then like everybody had to just rely on like captive breeding for new genetics. So, yeah, this is one of the few captive bred uh, genetics that have come out. And I don't actually think it's like spontaneous from wild type stuff. It came out of like stuff that I bred. So very big very different than a lot of stuff a lot of stuff is just like oh i got some heads from the wild that came out like this i don't think it's uh i think it's all captive bred here yeah i don't think people realize that the rate of mutation is going to be the same whether it's a wild animal or in your collection so you just kind of like the more animals you have the more chance the more chance you have although it's still very slim i mean you obviously got super lucky but you also have numbers to back it up so you had more of a shot but is this something to where i mean how how do you launch like a, a morph per se you know in this in this space in leopard geckos and were you faced with criticism when you launch yeah are people like because as soon as you put out a new morph most places it's either people down your throat immediately yeah so kind of what was your experience with that um so i took I didn't even release any information for uh, since 2015. So 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. So five years of breeding. So I really took it slow, to be honest. That's a long, <laughs> you must be a really good secret keeper because I yeah. to wait that long. Well, he was I almost went six years, but another breeder that got one other gecko from me hatched one out. And so I kind of had to like, like speed it up a little bit. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, I, I felt like, I felt like I needed to know everything about it before I released it. And I wasn't, you know, a new morph doesn't come along very often at all. And I'm not even like, I'm not even over, like, you got to really realize that this is a one in a million. Like this is, you don't have this doesn't happen at all especially something like this where it's an hygiene uh uh complete complete pattern changer um a complete uh color enhancer everything about it, it's cool you know completely different leopard geckos if you look at leopard geckos and you look at cool leopard geckos you're looking at an albino plus a tangerine an albino plus a bold like you're looking at stuff that's like one recessive that's kind of boring and then you're looking at a uh, line breeding aspect to that this thing has just completely changed the game and 
Limifrost did that in a lot of ways. Um, not sure if you're familiar with Limifrost with leopard geckos, but it was a big, big change in the leopard gecko world. But the problem is it was too good to be true. And, you know, a lot of pretty much all the Limifrost geckos ended up developing tumors. It was just too much, you know. Sometimes when you have a gene that creates such a good phenotype, it's just not going to work. And that was what happened with the, the lemon frost. Unfortunately, I, I spent $6,000 on them myself. God. Well, and, I was there um, at the Tinley where they auctioned them off. And I think Steve Sykes paid, I believe it was 13000 or 16000 or for the He pair. paid 10000 for the first female, but oh. she ended up dying. Um, yeah, it was... You know, whatever. If I would have known like everything about them, obviously I wouldn't have paid it. That that I wouldn't have paid anything for him. But right. um, Steve Sykes, you know, he had a golden opportunity with those, and he capitalized on it. And um, you know, he was stuck in a really hard situation. He he got stuck with a uh, gecko. He spent a lot of money on. A morph that he spent a lot of money on that he was selling off to a lot of people for a shit boat of money. Um, I mean, there's probably three, four hundred thousand dollars involved in that, you know. And so it's hard, it's hard for somebody like that to say no, you know, or to speak up. But you know, it is what it is. I feel sorry for him in some ways. In some ways, I don't, you know. And that was such a big deal. I mean, do you feel like it shakes the confidence of people whenever there is a new morph coming out? I mean, do you feel oh, like yeah. it's improved? For sure. For sure. Mine, with mine, that's part of the reason I even delayed, you know. I was like, I got to make sure this stuff is not weird, nothing weird about it, nothing going on. It's just a different morph, you know. My morph is a color um, enhancer, but it, not to the level of Limifrost. Limifrost was just like extreme. It just took a normal gecko and took. So what happened with Limifrost is ear to four cells were enhanced and there was an imbalance in those. And when that imbalance happened, it caused tumors to happen mm. in the cells and that also happened in the eyes and the liver, all around the gecko, it happened. And so you had a lot of people thinking like, oh, it could be possibly lime bread and something we could work out. But the thing is, like, you're if you're bringing like a dark gecko to that gecko and keeping like, you know, those ear to four cells on a lower level, you can get to that level where possibly where you're not going to produce as many that have the tumors. But mm -hmm. the second you you send it off to somebody that breeds it to a tangerine or do a hypo or something with more color to it, it's all on again. And so that's what happened. I knew it was going to happen from the beginning because I saw all lemon frost um, would develop it because I was breeding them all to tangerines. And every person I talked to that bred them to tangerines had the problem. Um, the second they were bred to wild types, they kind of slowed down. There wasn't as many problems. 
So I, I felt like it was just, it was a waiting game. Anybody that bred it to a wild type and sold it off is clean. You know, that next person's going to breed to a tangerine or something that has more color to it. And then all of a sudden it's going to pop out again. So it was, it was sad in a lot of ways and it, you know, could have worked out, but it was just, just too nice. It was too nice to work. I can't have nice And was that kind of, um, is that like a turning point as far as the, the, the market goes? I mean, you had this new gene that came in everyone, I mean, did you see a lot of people get out of it because After I mean that, they spent a lot of money? Right. What was the fallout? There was a there was a big fallout, especially in I saw for me, I don't really care too much because I deal with super high end leopard geckos, but um, in China I saw a little bit for sure, um, Japan a little bit. Um, those guys. They bought a lot of limberfrost and they paid a lot of money for them. And to be screwed that bad, you know, in the long run and try to defend it, you know, it's sad when, you know, they spend that much money and they get screwed on it. And they, even the people in the U.S., I'm, I knew people that had taken out, like, you know, maxed out their credit cards to pay for that oh, stuff. That's so disappointing. Yeah, this is a lot of people that shouldn't have bought them in the first place, you know, to be honest. I couldn't believe the people that bought them, some some of them, you know. It's like, why are you doing this, you know? I barely, I even myself, having the genetics that I have, I barely decided to buy them. And it was just, it was at that point where I knew that I could do stuff that other people couldn't. It was the only reason I decided to purchase stuff for that much. But if I had what most of the people had in the U.S., you know, to spend 3000 on a pair or, you know, 50, whatever it was, it was crazy, crazy money. So to spend on what is, I guess, the closest thing to a lemon frost that does not cause all these? Cypher. <laughs> <laughs> well... Cypher is completely different, 100%. So it's not it's not a, a color enhancer to that extent. So it does enhance the color, but it doesn't turn it into like, you know, a full bloom. You know, if you were talking about flowers, it would be like just a full bloom of flowers with the, with the lemon frost. Cypher is like, hey, we're taking your kind of normal leopard gecko or making it kind of like, you know, we're taking it from a C to a B plus. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, combination of, you know, animals, obviously that's going to be a big, can bring it to an A plus to current projects. Yeah. It's yeah bring- I kind of feel the weird thing is though, that the cipher is in a gecko that is completely normal at this point, And it makes them look like, really cool at this point so if i put it into a tangerine like even a little bit i kind of feel like it's going to be really nice and regardless i mean it's more obvious than a white and yellow which a white and yellow was a huge deal in the leopard gecko world um it's way more obvious than a leopard or a white and yellow um 
I mean, it's almost black and white when you hatch them out. It's like, I mean, it would be very, unless you're bringing it to an eclipse and it's somehow like that's a crossover when you're talking about genetics. So wouldn't really work anyway. So, I mean, it's, it's something pretty definite. And I just hatched like a few right now that were across the tangerines that were, um, the siblings are completely banded, like just normal, normal, normal. And then the the visuals are just have that stripe and just completely patternless and everything. So it's big. It's bigger than I mean, it's as big as I, it's as big as I would expect, you know, or want. Um, if it was bigger than this, I would kind of worry about it. To be honest. It's going to cause some sort of issue. <laughs> yeah, it's like if it was it was better than this, the issues might come up, you know. But I've had them for since 2015. No issues. Yeah, so, I mean, and it also seems like uh, mo money, mo problems, you know. <laughs> if your leopard geckos seem pretty, oh, this whole thing seems pretty fragile, this have big money on and it's it's a lot of pressure on your shoulders it would seem oh yeah leopard geckos are yeah i mean if you're if you're newer in the hobby a lot of people they kind of expect that you're going to be an idiot <laughs> in a lot of ways or kind of you know not care that much but at my point where i'm at like if i screw up it's a big deal so i kind of I, I'm honest 100% across the board, and I try to be as honest as possible. In leopard geckos, that's kind of a rare thing. So, you know, honestly, if you were just honest in leopard geckos, like, we can do well. <laughs> it's it's weird, but, like, leopard geckos are just one of those things where it's a lot of fun. Um, you're breeding, you know, I did, I bred 80-plus species of geckos, a lot of rhinos, a lot of boa constrictors, a lot of a lot of different species, and the incubator is just more fun than anything anything I've ever dealt with, you know. And that's why I just have stuck with it. And I know the drama on Facebook, but you're gonna have that with ball pythons and all kinds of stuff. You're gonna always have the drama and stupid people on Facebook, but. I've learned to deal with it better and I've learned to not overreact to Facebook. Um, I've always had my own website. So now with the Facebook problems, um, it's helped out. Um, so I'm not worried about it. I'll do what I do and I'll love what I do. If you know, one thing, one thing that's always happened. If, if my sales suck, I start advertising more because I have more time. And if sales are good, I don't advertise. And the thing is, I've always had good sales since, you know, for a while. So it's always been about the reptiles first. People that, you know, message me on email or Facebook or whatever that are, you know, I try to accommodate everybody, but there's obviously some people that are haven't done any research whatsoever, but I try to help them out. And I realized that I was that idiot at one point or that ignorant person at one point. I can only imagine like John Boone when he was dealing with my emails back in the day or, 
you know, some of the, <laughs> some of the guys that dealt with me. So, you know, I just want to see. Anyway. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with, you know, you're probably a little bit higher level, but still, I mean, even designer leopard geckos, I'm sure some of them fall into just pet market. I mean, people are willing to spend $200 on a very yeah, nice a pet. pet leopard go- gecko or something like that. So are you dealing with a lot of like first time pet owners? Oh yeah. I, I've always sold the pet market as well. Um, just cause I felt that there was a lot of people that didn't want to buy from the chain pet stores and they didn't want to support that. Um, and I still feel that way. I've increased my prices on my pet geckos, but I promise those people that I'm going to give them a good, good gecko and that I'm going to give them quality and something that's feeding right, something that doesn't have crypto, which most of chain pet stores, at least 30% have crypto. Um, and they still sell out. It's still my number one seller. So it's, it's tough because those people ask the most questions. They're difficult sometimes. <laughs> but... I want those people to be involved because they're like the first time gecko breeder. You know, I think like 10 years later, I may, or probably not that long, but maybe like five years later, and they might be the person that I'm talking to you about selling my $500 firebolt or whatever, you know? So, um, yeah, I, leopard, uh, the pet market. Yes, but more high end, more stuff that, people would you know appreciate yeah i don't i don't think any pet reptile should be sold under 50 bucks to be honest like i think at that point you get people that just don't care they don't care about the animal you know there's a problem with it you know they're 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 weighing out whether that reptile is worth more than 50 bucks or not when they go to the vet you know so for me it's like I I I keep a lot of geckos around that are kind of they'll be a little deformed, but I think they make really good pets. And sometimes I post them on my my page, and I sell a deformed gecko that is worth you know twenty bucks plus forty five bucks shipping, sixty five bucks to the person, and that gecko makes a great pet for the rest of their lives, and it had a slight deformity. You know, whereas if they went to the chain's pet store, the you know the things sold in mass and sold in you know when shipped, it's shipped in paper uh, paper like bags, like filled with hundreds of geckos, and so I think it's a better route forward for the hobby. Yeah, and man. It's such a difference that the more expensive the the snake in our case, the easier the customer, unfortunately. So when you're dealing, if you got to sell like $25 geckos, it would just be a nightmare or corn snakes for that matter. Uh, I think it's the same across the board, but yeah, leopard geckos, entry level reptile, bearded dragon, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. They're both going to be tough for I I don't try to cater to that 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 person. I try to cater to the person that's gone online and actually searched it out, and then gone to my website and saw like, hey, 
my pet geckos are 40 bucks plus shipping. It's a lot of money. Like at that point, I know that person cares about that animal. They're not going to spend 85 plus for a gecko to, you know, just to, you know, not care about it at all. So I don't mind catering to that person. I would, I would, you know, all day rather cater to that person than somebody that's, you know, screw it, reptile, whatever. <laughs> and because you kind of sell that next level a little bit more expensive leopard gecko, when you do shows, do you feel like a majority of the people coming to you have already like found your website? Or, or you do still- you do shows at all? Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. I should- <laughs> yeah. So I'm in Idaho now and there's no shows around me. I can drive out to California or I would like to drive out to Tinley um, or fly. If I fly, the problem is trying to get all my stuff out there. So um, shows at this point are fun. You know, I can do decently at a show, but if I'm going to do a show, it might be like overseas at this point. Do you oh. ship internationally to ham or China? Yeah, ham. Um, I've been invited to ham a lot of times. Um to Japan quite a few times as well. So I might do Japan the next time around because those people just, I mean, they're obsessed with like a lot of stuff I have. So it would be fun. It would just be fun to go there, like in my opinion. So I've done Tinley before, but I drove, I think when I was, I was living in Colorado at the time I did Tinley. So I drove 18 hours to get there and back and, I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was worth it for, you know, what I spent and made out of there. But, That's you know, awesome. yeah, it, where I'm at now, nobody, there's no shows in Idaho. There's no nothing going on. So if I'm going to do local shows, it'll be California at this point. Which I've done before, and they're fun. But Are there a lot of um, leopard gecko breeders that do Tinley? Oh, yeah. Tinley's like the big leopard gecko well at least was the big uh leopard gecko show for everybody um used to be daytona um but in the u.s typically daytona tenley um and the super shows in california uh specifically super show pomona san diego and whatever the northern california one is but um i used to live near the Pomona show in oh. California. It's okay. A lot of people are fake there, which kind of upsets me. But um, see, there are is. Tinley. Tinley, like if you guys can do Tinley, do Tinley. Like that's some real people. A lot of nice people that are you know really about the hobby, really about about the animals. I felt like every time I was in California, it was all about money. Like mm-hmm. to be honest, not everybody, of course, but. but the factor there I, yeah I tell me it was just you know cool and it was like all about the animals and everybody was having fun and like you know you weren't dealing with the fuck the business person out there you know so, so are you going this year i would like to but i'm pretty far away now so i moved from colorado to idaho now so i'm just to for the fun of it <laughs> yeah it's, it's at least 24 hours drive now so i gotta fly yeah i'm not, I'm not driving 24 hours at 10 minutes, so 
Um, if I, if I fly, I'll go and it'll be just for fun. I, I, I have all the, the show equipment. I got all the, the acrylic setups and everything, but you know, just not, there's nobody out. There's like two leopard gecko breeders out here total <laughs> and they're not really that into it. So I would think also like your shipping season would be pretty small in Idaho too. Uh, it's actually pretty good. Yeah. I've had about three weeks where it's been kind of hot. I've always been obsessed with going to the ship center to drop off. Maybe that's my problem, but I always drop off at the ship center. So I've always made it a point to go to uh, the ship center Mondays and Wednesdays. And so I don't, I don't ship any other days. I just ship Mondays and Wednesdays. And I've always found that customers will fall into those two days. Occasionally you get somebody that's really weird and they won't want to ship one of those days, but um, it's very odd to have that. So I, I make it a point because this is my livelihood and everything I do. So I go to the ship centers Mondays and Wednesdays and everybody falls in line with that pretty much. Um, if the weather's too hot, then it's too hot. But I'm I'm really good at shipping. So I won't I try not to brag about much, but shipping is one thing that you know I can pretty much ship no matter what. It's very rare that I don't ship. Even um, in the winter. Yeah, winter is actually better, to be honest. Um summer right now is the hardest time of year for me just because it can get you know above 95 plus but winter time no problem i mean it can be i'll ship to alaska when it's 10 degrees no problem um but i'm not saying for everybody to do that of course i don't want anybody to hear this and be like open pack a you know box with with a heat pack and think they can ship to alaska in 10 degree weather so <laughs> It, you know, shipping has to do with oxygen, how much oxygen you're applying to that package and also how much heat you're applying to that package. So if you're using like one of those heat packs, those things are burning oxygen, but also your gecko is, but your gecko is burning a lot less. You can get away with quite very little oxygen in that package. So you can put like if it's a three, four inch foam, you can put one hole in that with a heat pack and ship it off in 10 degree weather, no problem. But the second you try to do something like, well, you don't put any holes in it and you ship it off of that package. Maybe, probably not, but maybe you get a little too little oxygen in there. Um, if you're using the wrong heat pack, that's number one to kill the gecko or reptile in general. Um, there's a lot of factors, but yeah, if you know, you don't have to worry too much about the hubs. Um, hubs can be a problem if there's thunderstorms. Thunderstorms will delay a package. Just keep that in mind. Not really the heat or the cool. It'll just be the delay. Um, yeah, so if there's a thunderstorm at Memphis, I pretty much stop shipping. But, but yeah. your package these to the extent to where if they're 24 hours in a box wherever they're pretty much good to go yeah i i look at weather for the destination out two days <clears throat> every time i ship 
I write down the highs and lows for that area for two days. And then for Memphis, um, which for where I'm at, everything goes through Memphis or Oakland. Um, For Memphis, I always check it out a couple days as well. Um, Memphis is usually just the thunderstorm. So if you're looking at a bunch of thunderstorms late at night, yeah, you're probably going to get delayed. Um, but usually it's not a big deal. Um, the delays with going to the destination though, if you're looking at delay in Memphis, so there's, there's a bunch of thunderstorms in Memphis, there's a delay at the, where it's going to say it's like a, especially if it's like a 4:30 delivery or 12 delivery, um, where it's going to, and it's a little bit hot. You know, hot, scratch it. A little bit cool, you're always fine. You know, I've I've never had an issue with cool weather. Um, I'm very actually I've never had a, a dead on arrival um in all the years shipping except for one deformed gecko that had issues before and this never never was doing well before or after. So like it just died natural causes. So um use the real like reptile heat packs the 40 hour like unipacks you guys can let's see this is my whole box collection over there (laughs) i know too well no but do you see how his is this is how i want yours to be not all over our dining room table so i have those and then i have like tons of extra down in the basement, but basement. Um, you yeah, won't put these, these are these are all my. Like, no, I have like all the boxes below and then above, but yeah, and then I have all kinds of stuff for shipment. But anyway, See? yeah, heat heat is always what you got to worry about. Don't worry about the cool so much. Your geckos or your snakes or whatever, like they take 40 degree, 30 degree weather all the time. You know, naturally, like for instance, leopard geckos, everybody freaks out when they get above or below like 80 degrees. And it's like they've their whole, you know, where they're at gets below 80 degrees all the time, you know, so. I mean, as long as I, I've seen plenty of geckos get to literally freezing and bounce back. The second they get above like 95, 96, done. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of done, <laughs> we have reached our two hours. Um, I our- feel like there's something. There's oh, one gosh. more thing. I just feel like <laughs> because you have someone who's doing it full time and it seems like so many people talk about you know it's all good and fun until you're doing it full-time then it takes the fun out of it and it seems like you're still interested in like very small aspects of the hobby he finds and new challenges and new new things so it's like how do you keep yourself from being down and out about the whole business part of it it's actually a very very important question because it is true like you get to this point and you lose your interest. And I have lost my interest for sure in a lot of ways. Um, 
I would say find something that really keeps it going for one. Um, leopard geckos, and that would, I mean, if you're breeding the same, so for instance, I was breeding Goniosaurus for a while. Goniosaurus are like the cave geckos, which are like pretty, you know, you've seen them from mainland China and, you know, J Japanese cave geckos. So I was breeding those for a while. And they were a lot of fun to breed at first. And then after hatching out the 50th of the same species, it got to the point where I was like, mm, you know, I'm not having that much fun when I'm hatching these out. So um, it's hard to say like what's going to spark your interest like with everybody, but for me, with leopard geckos, it was just the fact that I was hatching out really cool stuff all the time. And kind of like, like if I took a picture of the stuff I was hatching out, like tons of people would be interested in it. So it's kind of not world's first or anything stupid like that, but like just, just like really cool geckos every time you hatch them out. And then with leopard geckos, actually, they like – if you start them off, so say they start off at three or four grams, at 10 grams are different than what they were at that point. And then at 20 grams are different and 30 grams are different. And so every point I reached, it was just like, I would have fun like, like feeding them, you know, feeding a couple hundred, 300, 400, 500 leopard gaggos. Like got to the point where I was like, whoa, that's cool. Let's go take a picture of that share it with people or whatever so um You're like oh i forgot i had this yeah it kind of reminds like, you <laughs> or it looks oh, different trust me with leopard geckos that's what it is all the time you don't even like leopard geckos don't look similar from day one to day 10 at all you can almost not even recognize them so a lot of the fun with leopard geckos, if you're doing the really high-end, nice leopard geckos, they really change really quick. And yeah, a lot of a lot of a lot of the fun and a lot of the interest that I've had and kept with it, you know, I've been doing this for leopard geckos at least 10 years straight. I still sit out there with a flashlight and I'm checking in on the leopard geckos in the incubator and you know, every time I see a like today, I saw three new ones, and all of them are different. All of them are just slightly different. And then two weeks from now, they're different. And then four <laughs> weeks from now, they're different. Like you wouldn't even recognize them in four weeks from what they hatch out. So, so it helps that you know you have a lot of different things to work with as far as genetics and different looks and lines and stuff like that. Yeah, it it. Of course, more the more stuff you have and the better stuff you have, it, it makes a difference for sure. But people can start off and like, and they can just like I always recommend people who are starting off with leopard geckos just start with lime bread stuff, you know, like polygenic traits like bolds and tenderings and like I do fire bolds a lot. Those are incredible to start off with, and every time you hatch them out, you're surprised. You know, you're not you're not seeing the same thing in the incubator every time. So, um, you know, if you're breeding one species and that's it, like so for leopard geckos, you could breed like 
Anger Manu or Fuscus or Hardwicky or whatever, like one of the species, it's always going to look about the same, you know, no matter what. It's cool to hatch out for sure, but the second you hatch out something that's new, it's, I mean, I think it's the same thing, same reason people are drawn to ball pythons. I don't, I don't work with ball pythons and never have. And I know a little bit, a little bit about them, but leopard geckos are similar in a lot of ways. And they have a lot of base recessive morphs, morphs and a lot of in, incomplete dominance and, you know, a lot of stuff to work with. And it's fun for sure. I think I think the most attractive thing or one of the most attractive things is the fact that you can get a world-class gecko. I mean, the ball python, the really awesome morphs typically are pretty high dollar, but you can get a world-class gecko for a good price, you know, something that's reasonable. Yeah, it's like, like with the new morph, the cipher, I was I, I had people complaining in Japan about the price on hits, and I'm like, what what are you complaining about this for? Like, look at look at ball python hits. Like <laughs> for a new morph, could you imagine? You know, like if there was a new Paul but or uh whatever it was in ball pythons, whatever morph it was, if it was a het for that and you were selling that, can you imagine that being fifteen hundred bucks or whatever, you know? Yeah. Not not even comparable, you know. But the th- the thing is with leopard gaggos, there's more people that want them. You know, it's crazy. So that's the thing. I'm like, I'm not trying to gouge the market or anything, but I'm just like, I'm not gonna undersell myself either. So yeah, you want to establish some reasonable market for these things because you value the animal and you, you value your customers too. You don't want someone to produce a hundred of them and then sell them for two hundred bucks each and crash the market for all your customers as well. And that just doesn't serve anyone. Yeah, I don't I don't breed that much either. So I'm not one of the mill breeders that are producing, you know, for instance, like the lemon frost, those are produced by a bunch of mill breeders that were gonna produce tons of them the first year. And even in that case, you still wanted them, but um I'm not anywhere near that level. So I may produce a thousand a year where those guys are producing a hundred thousand. So there's a big big difference there you know so i I, i'm also not selling to just anybody too i'm gonna sell with people that i care about and friends and you know whatever but it'll it'll go the right hands first of all and then you know we'll see from there (laughs) absolutely so it was great learning about all that i'm sure this is all i mean this whole leopard gecko thing is new to us 100 percent new but i'm glad we could Fill in the listeners who are more keen on leopard geckos. Yeah, I, I think the main point is leopard geckos are fun. Man. Mm-hmm. I, I, I trust me from somebody who bred boa constrictors and bred over 90 species of uh, other geckos and ranus and all kinds of stuff. Leopard geckos are a lot of fun. And even though if as long as you can get past the drama, which all, <laughs> all reptiles have, um, get past the drama you know, it's going to be a lot of fun. 100%. Awesome. Um, if someone wanted to reach out to you, what is the best way they can get in contact with you? Mm, just my website, geckoboa.com. Um, I'm not desperate for people's attention or anything like that. So I just, you know, if people are interested in high-end leopard geckos. That's what I'm into. Um, 
you know, do your research. I make my website uh, pretty all-encompassing. So if people want to know genetics about leopard geckos, like they can find out most information on there. I'm not there to answer like the real basic questions, but you know, I don't mind helping out people who have done their research either. So I think it was great that I, I believe it's your contact sheet right above it. It says my leopard gecko isn't eating click here. Like, <laughs> like, read this instead of messaging me the same question that I get. Yeah, it's, it's you got to understand with leopard geckos, it's way more common than with anything else that people just don't even try and don't even care. So uh, I try to make like the problem is my website's like got all the information people need, but it's almost too much in a way. So it's like the right balance between like enough that they're going to actually look at it and like actually, you know, you know, pay attention to what's going on on there. So I have to, I have to have that right balance on my website. So sometimes it's too much information. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you to everyone who watched us and slash listen to this in the future. If you're listening to the <laughs> audio, future. if you're listening to the audio version later, um, if you want to get in contact with us, uh, Port City Pythons on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. We have sneaks available on our website, uh, portcitypythons.com. And if you really want to email us, uh, theportcitypythons at gmail.com. And we will see people in the Maryland area in three weeks at the Haber Degree Show, September 7th. And we will see people in the Philly slash Philly surrounding area, <laughs> September 14th at the Oak Show. Yeah. And then we have York, Pennsylvania, and then hopefully White Plains. It's going to be a busy Wait, year. we're doing the York, Pennsylvania show? Oh, I don't know. Maybe we are. <laughs> well, Potentially. I doing didn't it. say it because I didn't know we were doing uh, it. Okay. Eh, maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, John Scarborough of Gekaboa. Sorry, I said Burrow that time again. Scarborough. 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 Uh, I've been saying Burrow. Sorry. Scarborough. Gotcha. Yeah, get Between Eubaflaris or whatever and. Eubaflaris. You know, things are just all mixed and mumbled. There's a lot of, not a lot of new words today. And. <laughs> What's the uh, and you? We still can't say that one. Angry, I say angry. Angry man. And, and I, I don't even know if I'm saying it right. So hopefully, <laughs> Turkmenistan. Okay, I like that one. Turkmenikis. <laughs> That's my favorite. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, we're getting off on. A we're just rambling here. on words we can't say. So <laughs> thank you and uh, have a good night, everybody. <laughs>